This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Thank you for tuning in across the nation, across the fruited plain, as uh, Rush Limbaugh used to say. What a great guy. What a great communicator he was. Um Amazing. Anyway, welcome. Welcome. Glad you're here. Thank you for listening. If you're at the Salem Radio Networks, The Answer San Diego, we love that station, love the people of uh, San Diego and the uh, Southern California. In fact, I'll be out visiting my family uh, who are spread from Ventura County down uh, and some cousins are down in uh, my in-laws are down in the San Diego area. So I don't know if we'll be all the way down uh, to San Diego this time, but be on the West Coast pretty soon. But right now I'm in the swamp and um, broadcasting and getting you the scoop on what you need to know uh in a moment we will get uh we will have a chance to visit uh with uh Tom Baker the return the retired FBI agent uh his book the fall of the FBI is extraordinarily well done and important. You're going to want to hear that interview. He's been on the program before. I was joking with him in preparation for the interview. Um, I had him on the show when his book first came out. I, I love to get new authors. And uh, Mr. Baker, retired FBI senior official for a, maybe a decade now, wrote this book, Post Hill Press, their imprint, Bombardier Books, published it. I think I had him on a year ago. Now he's a huge star. He's been on all the TV shows and everywhere, but he's great. He'll be back on. We'll talk about the FBI. We'll talk about what he's seeing and i'm going to ask him about some whistleblowers uh, i have a question about that since that's in the news so prominently and then we'll talk with mark mix it turns out that the member of the left wing starbucks you love your coffee the starbucks people unionized uh with a lot of help and a lot of money from the sciu and others you know these organizers and in places the starbucks employees are saying wait a second this is a bad deal for us we want out and you can't get out it's like the Hotel California. Starbucks unions are like the Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. So you baristas, if you sign up for the Starbucks union, it was supposed to be Nirvana. Or I don't know. I'm really mixing my metaphors. It was supposed to be uh, Shangri-La. It turns out, maybe Shangri-La it is. It turns out to be uh, strange and unhelpful. And we'll talk with Mark Mix of the National Right to Work about that. But first, before we get to any of those interviews, what you need to know today, what you need to know today is wink, what you need to know, W-Y-N-K, wink, what you need to know. Go to ProAmerica, excuse me, ProAmericaReport.com and sign up for the daily wink, which comes in your email box at 8 a.m. East Coast, 5 a.m. Pacific. It just gives you a few key things, a few key thoughts, a few key thoughts from me, a few key links, and often this commentary. So here's the wink, though, today. The hearing that you're hearing about is not the one that in the long run will matter as much. Now, it's a bit of a big claim, but there was a lot of attention all day Wednesday and uh, afterwards on the IRS whistleblowers who appeared before the House committees there, I think uh, the Oversight Committee, and they said, you know, what's going on here? Weaponization of government and all that. And uh, Jason Smith, the congressman from the Ways and Means Committee, was a part of that, and so was uh, Jim Jordan and uh, and uh, uh, Comer, uh, Chairman Comer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's important. And it probably is going to show that the corruption of the um, Biden White House and Joe Biden, the Biden family, the Biden crime family is profound. Uh, but that, well, that, I, that strikes me as inevitable. That strikes me as inevitable. In a different hearing where I was and where I was working and paying attention and pushing and pulling was the subcommittee of the House Administration Committee. And it was a subcommittee for January 6th. 
and the committee met to speak to the inspector general of the Capitol Police. Now, the inspector general of the Capitol Police has a unique role. He it could be a she, but in this case, it's a he is the guy who gets to look into what happened and what's gone on. So when you have a question, it's like internal affairs. When you have a question and you're the Congress and you have a right to ask the House, especially what is it that happened here? It's this guy who can find the truth because He's neither a he's not in the line of the chief of police. He's not a line uh, officer. He's a guy to get to the bottom of it. And this hearing, I know because I was helping because I care so much about January 6th. This is Chairman Barry Loudermilk of Georgia, and he was the victim of the select committee of January 6th, led by uh, Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney, the the uh, terrible, terrible, corrupt select committee from last Congress. And they and they slurred and smeared Congressman Loudermilk. They put a video together, they cut and pasted a video, and they implied that the images of him, Congressman Loudermilk, giving a tour of the Capitol on January 5th, 2021, were reconnaissance tours, a reconnaissance tour. Now, I have done the tour of the Capitol with Congressman Loudermilk and his wife, who's a charming woman. And the two of them uh, give this, they ha- well, they just have a great, they have a great marriage, a great friendship, I think, to talking together. And so Congressman Loudermilk, who he loves the history of the Capitol and the history of the people. He, he showed these nooks and crannies of the Capitol tour. I went on with my wife and about four or five others. And his wife, Congressman Loudermilk, at one point she's like, <clears throat> and, and, and kind of added something. At one point he forgot somebody's name. And he said and she got it. It was wonderful. He's the farthest thing from a guy that would give you reconnaissance tours of January 5th. He he is a conservative. He's from Georgia, but he's a very kind man. He's not even the kind of politician that people on other their own side or other side, the other side dislike. They just like him. So they slurred him. The select committee, Cheney Thompson, sl- smeared and slurred him. And now he's the chairman of this subcommittee and he's methodically going through. And there was video in this hearing that was processed for this hearing and we look i looked at and we had lawyers looking at and experts looking at and we're going to get to the bottom of it but it was a series of instances not one not one capital policeman but more than one it looked like six or seven and probably over a hundred capital policemen in total who were part of of allowing people to enter the capital through one of the doors the upper west terrace they actually we're holding the door, opening the door, uh, ushering them in. And the whole line of the law enforcement, Capitol Police, was standing back and saying, you know, OK, go let him let him go in there. And so, which is completely contrary to all the select committees nonsense, to all the DOJ. And so the inspector general is faced with a series of questions, some of which he could answer in front of the, the, the committee. Others, he has to go get the answers. But a series of questions. And this is my point. As we unravel the truth of January 6th, the problem for the left and the media in this country is as you unravel the truth of January 6th, it reveals second and third crimes and misconduct. What I mean by that is on the day of January 6th, it looks to me like the police department was overwhelmed because mismanaged. I don't know if the people at the top, Pelosi's aides or whatever, were actually wanting all of what happened to happen, but they were either incompetent in the direction of making this happen or they were duplicitous. I'm not sure which, and it doesn't really matter. 
because the normal police officers, it's not their job to assess all this. It's not their job to plan for the problems. Their, their job is to do what they're supposed to do. And when you see that they're what they're told to do is let people in, help them, wave them in, open the door, close the door, make sure they're in safely. Don't get your hat caught. Don't hit your head. Go over there. I mean, it's incredible. And as uh, one of the uh, questions that came up is this one, very simple one. When did the First Amendment protest transition to domestic terrorism, which is what Pelosi and Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney and the Department of Justice say it is, say it became? What moment? What moment did that happen? When did everybody know? And that, Because that's a legal standard that they've been using against the country. But here's my point. When you pull that back, you say, whoa. Whoa, if January 6th was a law law enforcement uh, failure, a mess up, some people acted badly. That's true. But if that's if it was a protest that went a little bad. What's the cover up been? And it's not even a cover up. It's the use of the events in order to do what? Well, currently it's to election interfere. It's to interfere with the next election. But in more specifically, it has been a way to punish your political opponents. And I don't just mean somebody goes, oh, that's that person over there is a is my political opponent. He or she's going to run against me. It just is people on the other side of the arguments on the other side of the politics. You just punish them as a cautionary tale to the rest of the world. See what happens if you're one of those Trump people. See what happens if you're one of those people that protests and thinks you have that set of rights. Well, we'll squash you and we'll use the lawfare any way we want. So what unravels as January 6th unravels and it started at this committee hearing. And I congratulate uh, Congressman Barry Loudermilk and the others as it unravels and you see the truth. One, you realize they're persecuting by prosecuting a whole bunch of people. And two, you realize that the select committee was truly evilly using their power to damage people. And three, the Department of Justice is doing the same thing, and they're currently doing it for election interference. It's a big deal. It happened in that hearing. More to follow. More to follow. We'll come back to this, I promise. Uh, Be right back. I got to take a break. Uh, Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Many months ago, many months ago, I had Tom Baker on the show. He wrote an extraordinary book, which I'm looking at. Uh, and my listeners, uh, Mr. Baker, know how much I love books. And so uh, I have this book in front of me. It's extraordinary. It's about his experience, uh, his work, his life in the FBI. It's called The Fall of the FBI, How a Once Great Agency Became a Threat to Democracy. Thomas J. Baker. It's from Bombardier Books, which is from uh, Post Hill Press, one of my favorite groups, Anthony Zaccardi and his team. And so uh, and then Tom Baker went on to fame and fortune. I don't know about fortune, but fame. His book became a must read by everybody. And we've seen him all over TV as well as radio. And people are listening. Um, you know, uh, Mr. Baker, it's great to have you back. I, I, I think I asked you this the last time. It must be one of these mixed experiences. You put your life into this uh, work and you watch the FBI be so diminished and yet you're right. I mean, part of you is like, hey, look, I'm describing what I saw, whether it was your history of Mueller uh, running things and all. But it, it must be a mixed sort of feeling every day almost. Ed, it's great to be with you again. Yes, it is very mixed. Uh, it's For people like me who, who lived in and loved the FBI, a lot of what is happening is absolutely heartbreaking and very hard to understand. 
Uh, at the same time, I'm very glad I wrote this book and I'm very glad I've been speaking out and others are too, uh, because everything that's happened recently with the uh, Durham report yeah. and, uh, has, has vindicated, has validated everything we said in the book. You know, I was talking with Tom Baker again, and I'll put up on social media and he's on social media. He'll link to it. He said to his a link to his book and to this interview. But, um, you know, Tom, that when I when I read the book, uh, I got two things I, I want to say. William Webster, who we love because he's got Missouri connections um, and where I'm from. But um, he the quote at the beginning of the book, we must do the work the American people expect of us in the way the Constitution demands of us. Um, and so that's powerful. And you say, well, it looks like people lost focus. But I, I guess I want to pause. I I wanted to make sure to include that quote, but I want to pause. There's this FBI whistleblower, Steve Friend. You probably know him, I bet, but over the now in this period. But a guy like him, his career gets taken away from him because the FBI is such is such a mess. I, I hate to say it, at least you got a long career of and when you read the book of doing you know, good things for people and, and, and directionally, you know, making things better in the country and living up to the constitution guys like friend, he's a whistleblower, but he says, Oh, wow. What a great thing. A whistleblower. Well, you know, you, you got to retire at the end of seeing it a mess. He, he, he lost his career. That's a terrible loss for us, for people to not have careers that are meaningful, that give them stature and fulfillment. Well, yes. And, and Steve is one of several, as you know, and another thing that's happened to me and is alarming, but also heartening at the same time. And let me explain. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the last several months since the book's been out, uh, obviously, I've been at book shows, book fairs, book signings at Barnes and Noble and other locations. And people come up to me and they identify themselves as current or FBI employees or people who've recently retired or resigned from the FBI. And in fact, I've had several instances where someone comes up and identifies themselves as a spouse of a current FBI agent. And they all tell me, they all tell me, you got it right, but it's much worse than you think. And they give me examples, much of the same stuff that Steve talked about. These uh, new breed of individuals, the intelligence analysts, several of these people have come up to me and said, they're running the agenda, the intelligence analysts. Mm. And of course, they're not as grounded in the Constitution as the agents are or should be. Oh, uh, again, Tom Baker is our guest, and and his uh, book is a, a big hit. And uh, Tom, um, oh, hey, can I ask you about? Uh, were you were you on in the FBI under Sessions, Director Sessions? Yes. And did you know yes. him? What, what was he like? Well, I've met him several times. I, I don't dwell on him because uh, he came to a, to a bad end in a matter of speaking. Where I mention him is uh, the uh, briefly acting attorney general, uh, Bill Barr, in his first uh, turn as later as attorney general, worked very closely with those in the FBI, myself and several FBI executives then who I greatly admired and respected. And uh, they were in close contact with Bill Barr and Bill Barr finally had to write up the memo that ultimately led to the firing of uh, Sessions. Sessions after after uh, Janet Reno had taken Barr's place as attorney general. Hmm. And I mentioned that in the book by way of saying that Bill Barr is someone who knows about firing an FBI director. And of course, you, you might recall, <laughs> Barr forthrightly defended the firing of James Comey. Right. Uh, and he really thinks, thought it needed to happen. And he's the one person in America who had previously been involved in, in such a thing. 
Yeah. Uh, but, 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 uh, uh, okay. So when you watched, um, uh, again, we're talking with Tom Baker and, and his book is called The Fall of the FBI from Post Hill Press imprint, Bombardier Press, uh, Bombardier Books. Um, when you watched Ray or and read Ray's testimony in the last few weeks, I, I often tell people like, you're, you're, not, you're not hired to be FBI director. You, you do have to do internal, external relations. But those those sound bites in Congress, uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, it's, and I, I don't judge people by that. But on the other hand, it's kind of the job these days. And is Ray uh, I mean, is Ray too far gone or, or I guess it could could Ray is the system able to be fixed by a new leader or is the system broken? Well, the, the culture is definitely broken and the culture needs to be fixed. And up till now, and my, my argument with Ray, who I don't think is a bad person at all, but my argument with him is he sees all these as individual instances, individual cases, and he tries to constantly defend things. And in, in each case, go, going back to the firing of Comey, Strzok, and, and McCabe, and then the, the, the firing of two agents involved in the, in the governor fiasco in Michigan, the firing of two agents or of letting two agents walk out the door in the in the gymnast case and so on and so forth each time. And essentially, Ray thinks or maintains that the rotten apples are gone. This is a matter of individual rotten apples. I think John Durham was closer to the truth when he said in his report, which came out only a little more than a month ago, that the FBI has to be constantly reminded to adhere to these constitutional guidelines. And I think Ray is still not recognizing that there's a cultural problem. It's not just a few rotten apples. Uh, Tom Baker's our guest, uh, and his book again, uh, is out everywhere you buy books and you can, you can get your copy, uh, fall, the fall of the FBI. Um, do you, th- when you watch the Trump, uh, the stuff around Trump and the way everything's being handled, I mean, again, it, it's all too much for me. I can't stand it. I think it looks like all politics, but I'm, I'm not, bi- I'm not unbiased. I think of, I look at things through a political f- a filter, but I, I mean, it just seems so out of control. Well, it does. And it, it, what it seems to a lot of the uh, the broad spectrum of American people, really, is that there's an imbalance in the justice system. Uh, unfortunately, Trump complicates all of this uh, <laughs> in as much as some of this. Yeah. You know, frankly, he's brought on himself. Uh, it's inexplicable uh, why he kept those documents when he did. A lot of things are inexplicable on the same at the same time. Uh, two things can be true at the same time. And one is. There should have never been a raid on his residence uh, to obtain the documents. And even agents, uh, executive agents involved in the planning of that said as much. Uh, so th- there's, all, there's this imbalance today, and that concerns a lot of people. Yeah. But Trump doesn't make it easy for yeah. us in trying to reform <laughs> the FBI. Right. And in that hearing with Ray, uh, most of, not all of, but most of the Democrats took advantage of the situation uh, led by uh, Nadla, the the, uh, the ranking minority member on that committee, uh, judiciary, mm-hmm. uh, just took the time to denounce Trump, to denounce Trump's errors and missteps, rather than focusing on the subject at hand, which was and should have been the the examination of Ray and the reform of the FBI. Yeah, you know, uh, Tom, I'm sorry, I'm out of time. Uh, Tom Baker's our guest, uh, and I could talk all day with you, and I should have you for a longer interview, but but I'm going to plant a question, and then I'm going to email you and have you come on again. And that is, I'd love to hear you talk about how powerful an agent and a prosecutor's uh, ability to shape 
the pursuit of a case is in gaining charges because it feels to me like we're living in a time where outside forces are describing, and I can show you the memos that are on the internet to the prosecutors, how they think they should go and get these cases. Uh, the one I'm thinking of is obstruction of official proceeding. The one in, in Washington, which you're going to use on Trump, I think, and they're using on J six guys. And it's really a, a, almost like a thought. It's not a thought crime. It's, obst- it's actual conduct, but it's being used to say you can, you can, you can tell something about what you should have expected to happen. It, it, it's haunting to me that that's the, that the power of the prosecutors, but I, I don't have time. So I, I'm going to pl- plant that and thank you and promote your book and have you back again so thank you sir thank you ed thank you for all the good you do all right well thanks very much uh tom baker everybody it's an extraordinary book you got to get it and read it uh and uh, we got to take a break though i'm up against the break it's ed martin here on the pro america report we'll be back in a moment Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. You know, it um, earlier this week, I had a back and forth with one of the folks uh, over at the National Right to Work that does uh, so much analyses of what's going on and, and keeps an eye on things. And and it, one thing led to another. And the next thing you know, we I, I said, let's get Mark Mix uh, on. He's the foundation, the president of the uh, National Right to Work Foundation, among other things, been in the uh, in the mines, as we say, not unionized, well, in the mines for decades and decades, helping workers, helping helping people, and I dare I say, uh, directionally helping the country uh, get on track. So welcome back, Mark. How are you? I'm doing great, Ed, and and you're one of those people in the mines too. So I'm not. I'm not. I, we're about the same age, I suspect. I think that's anyway. true. That's true. Yeah, that's right. I just give you more credit. It's easier that way. It's a. It's an old trick. It's an old trick of a radio host. Uh, National Right to Work. If you go to nrtw.org, there you can find everything you need to know. That's the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. You can go through to a lot of the different work that they do. Uh, it's been around since the late 1960s. Uh, extraordinary. Um, I don't know. The way I would say it, Mark, is, and to your credit, and you, you've been, you know, key leader, but also they were there for a long time. They just extraordinary discipline in focusing on how to succeed in different places. In fact, uh, I, I can't remember, um, uh, for sure that Gary Glenn, the great Gary Glenn, who was a state legislator in Michigan, uh, and is a great friend. I think he cut his teeth very early in his career working on right to work stuff. And, uh, anyway, he's, uh, I've talked to my listeners. He's facing health issues. It's been ongoing for years and has taken a bad turn. He's a wonderful man. But anyway, back to Mark Mix and right to work. The Starbucks question. I get Mark. I know there's a broader history. We're going to talk about what's going on at the Mall of America out in Minnesota. But give give me the context of this. This is not like one day uh, some people said, "Hey, let's get get our uh, get our uh, union going at Starbucks." This is a systematic thing. Give us a history of this. Yeah, you know, Ed. That, thank you for that question. It's a great question because you know, just about four years ago, Starbucks was named the most progressive company in America. It was a great place to work. The baristas loved their the atmosphere, <laughs> the environment, right. uh, the ability to you know to dress as they will and and uh, you know wear the earrings that they want and all kinds of other things. But all of a sudden, something changed. And what was it that changed that made Starbucks kind of the evil employer and an abuser of of human capital? Well, it was a drive by the Service Employees International Union, the SEIU, which is a which is the, the backroom operation for a group called Starbucks United, which is the union that allegedly is is organizing employees across the country. Well, I shouldn't say allegedly, but because the, they are. But the bottom line is this: we found out 
recently that the SEIU invested $2.5 million in hiring union agents, union employees that were designed to go in undercover and go into a Starbucks operation and agitate for unionization, talking about how bad things were and how much these baristas could, could benefit from union representation. It turns out that at the very first Starbucks unionization drive in Buffalo, New York, the person that was in that basically it placed in that uh, that operation was a former Rhodes Scholar. She was being paid $50,000 by the union. And then she represents herself as an employee of Starbucks and saying, oh, my goodness. She actually testified in a hearing on Capitol Hill, never indicated that she was an employee or an agent of the union. And there's some trouble brewing right now. The Congresswoman Virginia Fox, the chairman of the Health and Education Committee, has basically asked a lot of very, very important questions about this witness and why she wasn't forthcoming and how she was operating to organize these workers. And what we find, Ed, is this is happening happening around the country because now Starbucks workers are coming to us and saying, can you help us get out of the situation we're in with the union? And that uh. leads us to the Mall of America in Minneapolis. Yeah. Now, pause. Before we get to Mall of America, I want to get to that. And that's really the hook that got me into this. But I want to pause. Mark, it's not illegal or tell me, it's. I don't think it's illegal to lie about who pays you to work unless you're under oath. I mean, I guess if someone says, but so hiding and, and sort of front groups, as you point out, like they'll have these, I mean, it sounds a lot like organized crime. It sounds a lot like uh, 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 the mafia, you know, but they have these front groups that are set up here that call themselves this and all that. A lot of that's not illegal, right? I mean, most of that's not illegal. It's deceptive. And what I would argue is once you get in a situation where the actual uh, system is about moving money around, in other words, it becomes a racket as opposed to a job uh, uh, focused on jobs or people's dignity, that's what you're going to get. Uh, but it, it, are, are, is there any sense that that early stuff where they were, that person was lying, is it illegal? I, I guess lying under oath is. That's so I'll, I'll concede that. Is, other, is the other stuff illegal? You know, it may be bad practices. We may not like it, but is it illegal? Uh, not yet. Um, okay. And, you know, generally, Ed, this was occurring in the construction industry in, okay. in the HVAC business in the, in the construction industry where these union salts would go in and get a job and then they would want to get fired and they would say, okay, you fired me because of anti-union animus. Or they would come in flouting oh. their union membership with, with you know, patches and signs and saying, I'm a union organizer. I want you to hire me. And when the employer doesn't, they get fined in unfair labor practice charges, that kind of thing. Okay. So right, there is a bill that was just introduced by Rick Allen of Georgia to basically make sure that if you're going to create an agency relationship, that you need to you need to let people know that, you know, you're being hired by a union and paid by a union. That legislation probably won't make it through this Congress. But it's good that we have a debate about it. To your point, I mean, the idea of being. You know, it's not being it's not illegal at this point, but it's it's really it's it's in this case, you know, this worker, as soon as the union organizing drive was over, she moved on. She went to another one. And and I think there's operators out there from the SEIU. They're doing this still today in the Starbucks operation and doing it in other places, too. So, you know, it'd be nice if an employer understood exactly what he was getting into and understood that, you know, the union was actually hiring someone to put in his workplace deceptively to organize his workplace. Not illegal, but certainly. Right. Uh, right. Well, and, and 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 what what and and far from what would have been the, I think, moral, morally uh, permissive and morally acceptable argument that, hey, 
let us explain to you how this is better uh, for your people in a working environment, which, you know, even even you, you you concede, hey, look, I'll argue. Let me argue straight up with you that, you know, how it's better to be a union or not union based on what it will mean to you, a worker, because in part, the system got so corrupted. But again, you know, 120 years ago, you and I probably could have been people that said, hey, we do need some kind of union to protect workers. But all the way forward to today, it's not protecting workers. It's enabling bureaucracies. It, in, in direct sort of model to what has happened in, in Washington in the, in the federal government. But I, I don't want to mark I, we could spend you and I could spend a, a fortnight <laughs> talking about that mall of America. Now, now walk us through this, these set of facts there, everybody. It's funny. Everybody in America knows the mall of America. It's like the Waldorf Astoria at a certain point would have been for America's. And now we know the mall of America, and maybe that's going to be out of our minds soon. So will some, something will be TikTok America, but the mall of America, tell me what happened here with this. Walk us through this one. Yeah, this is the latest uh, uh, basically effort by the employees of the Starbucks there to get out of the union. You know, basically, once the union is certified, you have to wait at least a year before you can have a vote as to whether or not the union stays or goes. It's called a contract bar. You get that. And of course, both parties have to bargain in good faith and try to get to a contract. But the workers there, this is the fifth one that we've got um, that have come to us that have passed that one year threshold and now saying, you know, this isn't what everybody said it was going to be. The union's not speaking for us. They're not reaching out for us. They're not protecting us. They're basically in this for politics and headlines to, quote, create this this notion that somehow there's this mass unionization drive across the country. And they picked Starbucks for this. But these workers have come to us and said, hey, can you help us get out? And Ed, it's no surprise that it's really easy to get into a union. It's really, <laughs> really difficult to get out. That's for sure. Right. And that's where we come in, helping them kind of navigate this this maze, if you will, of legal of labor laws that allow you to get out of a union. And frankly, the National Labor Relations Board, which is under the Biden you know control at this point, they they have no interest in letting people out. They want to force more people in, but they don't want anybody out. And so these workers, you know, big business has lawyers, unions have lawyers, employees don't have lawyers, but they do have us. And now they have lawyers and we're helping them navigate that process to get out. Uh, Mark Mix is our guest. And again, I'll, I'll put up on social media, nrtw.org. That's nationalrighttowork.org, the website for the National Right to Work Legal Foundation. Mark is the head there. Mark, I just have a minute left. What's the timeline on something like this? You know, these workers say, say we need help. You give them help. Is that, and I know we're stuck with the Biden administration, but you know, the timeline is it'll take six months or a year. It'll take five years. It'll take a change of leadership in the White House. What, what is it that has to happen? All of the above, Ed. All of the above. There'll be, you know, the regional director up there in Minnesota, I think it's region 18, will will look at the facts in the case and what they're going to rule, what they're going to rule probably is what they've already ruled in two other cases that we have in Buffalo and and in, Manha- in Manhattan at a roastery there, uh, that, the, that Starbucks is such an egregious violator of labor policy that there's no way that these the laboratory conditions that must exist for an election can occur. And so therefore, they'll probably block the election. I and, see. You know, we're going to have to litigate that. We'll litigate it as far as we can. And we're going to stand up for these employees. But it's a very difficult road to hoe, hmm. road to hoe, I should say. Um, and yeah. uh, But we'll be with them every step of the way. Well, and listen, Mark, thank you. I'm out of time. But Mark uh, Mix, and, and again, more on his website. We'll have you back again. It's uh, the, the again, the power of knowing what is possible uh, and how to go about it is so important. So thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ed. All right. Mark Mix, everybody, uh, extraordinary uh, leader of, of his organization. You should check it out and I'll put it up on social media. But I got to take a break and be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, the conservative pro-family broadcast of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, a leading voice for the sanctity of life, traditional education, the Constitution and American sovereignty. 
And now, from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. The University of Wisconsin at Madison has decided to offer a postdoctoral fellowship in something called feminist biology. It's not clear what feminist biology is. The university says that the program aims to develop new theory and methods in biology that reflect feminist approaches. It will focus on gender-related research and educate young scientists about gender bias. The director of the school's Center for Research on Gender and Women says that this fellowship is very necessary because biology is now full of patriarchal bias and points of view that prevent women's success. As an example, one professor cited the 19th century view that women were less intelligent because their brains were smaller. I think that's a silly argument. Universities don't need a new feminist program because of what scientists believed 150 years ago. I don't believe that old story keeps women from succeeding in biology. Women already earn more PhDs than men in this field. Women have a significant majority in undergraduate and master's degrees and even a majority in doctoral degrees. A few departments are exceptions, but biology is not one of them. Feminism flocked into most humanities courses years ago, and students are now expected to examine literature, history, and philosophy in the light of feminist perspectives. But do we now have to endure this in the sciences, too? Biology ought to be a field based on fact and reality, and your perspective should matter very little. Men are starting to avoid the college departments where women predominate. Maybe that's because men don't want to pay for courses where feminists subordinate fact and truth to feminist ideology. Maybe men want to learn biology as it really is, not as the feminists are trying to change it. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. For more than 50 years, Phyllis led the fight against the dead-end road of radical feminism. Today, with the rise of so many savvy young conservative women, new voices are emerging. You're invited to voice your opinion on what's really important to women at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report, ProAmericaReport.com. Check it out there. Um, Okay. I want to do something today. I I want to cover uh, more specifically. I I spoke earlier. I've spoken. I've been I've had him on the program a couple times um, and he is extraordinary. And he's one of my favorite guests because um, of what he's talking about. His name is Tom Baker, Thomas J. Baker. Um, his book is called The Fall of the FBI, How a Once Great Agency Became a Threat to Democracy. I want to spend a couple minutes talking about the book. I had him on the show, I think at least twice now, talking about his book. Um, it comes, it's from Bombardier Books, uh, which is a division of Post Hill Press. As I mentioned, there's some of my friends there. Anthony Zaccardi is the publisher. They, they do great books. And, uh, and so I just encourage them, but this one is special to me. Um, Tom Baker, if you read this book, you will get um, the the two things that you need to understand, in my opinion, how to make progress on the FBI. One is you have to recover your 
affection and esteem for the FBI agents. That's number one. Number two, you have to have a, a real grasp of the reality. And the reality, in my opinion, and, and this is from Tom Baker's teaching, is that the FBI has a, a problem of culture, of their culture, of, of how they think about themselves and how they're uh, positioned in, in the, in their job. They're, I think, they, I think they know the constitution. A lot of them, I think they um, are, you know, they, I think that they have, uh, they do have um, certain limitations under the law that should be good enough, but I think the culture has gotten rotten. And that's what, again, what Baker taught. Um, so, but number one is important. And when you read about this, uh, read about Tom Baker's career. For me, I have said over and over again that when I was a kid, the FBI, there was nothing better, right? I mean, it wasn't just Elliot Ness. It was down the street, Mr. Galapo. It turns out years later, I realized that Mr. Galapo worked for, uh, I think, Customs, but he was always with the FBI guys or he was with, I, I associated, I guess, federal agent. By the way, the book again is The Fall of the FBI, How a Once Great Agency Became a Threat to Democracy, Thomas J. Baker. So for me as a boy, a young American of a certain background, maybe, I don't know, my family, you you would, if someone was an FBI agent, that was a big deal. That was a really big deal. And I remember as a boy in high school, I think it was, I realizing that I heard people said a lot of the FBI agents are also lawyers. And a lot of the FBI agents are also veterans. And a lot of the FBI agents at that time, they were uh, uh, CPAs. They were saying, you know, we need more accountants because it's a lot more complex. And then towards my college years, they started to talk and say, if you're a linguist, you know, if you speak Russian, if you speak lang- languages are important. So there was a sort of, they were cut above. And when you read Tom Baker's account of his early career, it captures all that stuff. It captures all that feeling of why people did it, of the caliber of the people. And it wasn't just academic. There was a quality to the people of a sort of, um, of a sort of integrity. That's the right word. It wasn't um, better than you. It wasn't better than anyone else. It was, but it was uh, integrity, high integrity. I remember in St. Louis, um, in my law school class, there was an FBI agent named Jeff Jensen. He went on to graduate law school, later left the FBI and became a prosecutor and was somewhat, somewhat famous. He was U.S. attorney for a while from the Eastern District of Missouri. And at the same time, I, I, I did some work at the federal prosecutor's office as an intern, and I met the um, uh, Dowd family. And the Dowd family's got all these lawyers and judges in their family. But the father... Uh, of one side, there was two brothers actually, but one of the two brothers who was, uh, at the time that I was in maybe early 1990s, maybe mid 1990s, he might have been in his 80s. Uh, and is now deceased. But he, Mr. Dowd, was an FBI agent first. And then he came to St. Louis as an agent, came back, I think, to St. Louis, and then set up, and his family had all these lawyers and doctors anyway, but he was well known for extraordinary integrity. And that was the quality. Well, when you read this book, and you read uh, and you read what Tom Baker is saying. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to hear him talk about why he did the work, how he did the work, what it meant to be there. And that's that's much of the book. About 250 pages of the book is that. And then it switches over and it's called The Ugly, The Fall of the FBI. And for from page 200, I'm looking at it now, 244, page 244 through th- about three, 318, 319. So what was that? I am not good with math. Uh, you know, uh, not even 80 pages. It is a, a, in there are packed uh, 10 or so chapters where Tom Baker can describe from his proximity in the bureau what went wrong. 
and how it went wrong and how the second to last chapter is the FBI's uh, 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 fix the FBI's broken culture, which is really it's only a 10 page chapter. He lay, uh, lays out that the culture is broken and here's why. And then the next chapter is can the culture be worn back one back. So the uh, I'm telling you, if you want to understand what's happening, it's very helpful to not just hear how broken it is, but to hear how extraordinary it is. And so that when you get somebody, I saw Congre- uh, Speaker McCarthy say, you know, it's not the 99% of the agents that are that are bad. It's uh, the system. Well, that's hard to say. That's that's hard to describe. I mean, it's hard to excuse uh, so many people when the culture's bad. It's almost like you're swimming in a in a in a in a dirty pool. Y- you can say, "Well, I'm not the bad guy. I didn't make the pool dirty, but the pool's dirty." That's a pretty weak metaphor, but you get the point. And so um it's a very helpful book, and I just want to encourage you to get it and to pay attention and to uh to as as Thomas Baker has received more and more attention himself, I encourage it. I encourage it and encourage people to to uh seek him out. He's a great, very good speaker, and it's a very important topic, but that's how I saw uh what it taught me. So there you have it, Thomas J. Baker, Bombardier Books, The Fall of the FBI, How a Once Great Agency Became a Threat to Democracy. Get it everywhere they sell books. All right, we're done for this uh, day. I thank you for this show. Thank you to uh, Noah Dingley, our producer, Ryan Height, and Mason Mohan uh, for associate producing the program and you for listening. Don't forget, check out ProAmericaReport.com to sign up for the daily email of mine. And we'll be back tomorrow. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Talk to you then. This is the Pro America Report on The Answer San Diego.